1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stronger Minds podcast, where I, Kimberly Wilson, Chartered Psychologist, bring you the latest information and research on how to build healthy brains and strong minds. This episode is a little bit different as it's the audio recording of the latest book club session and for those of you who don't know I have an online book club called Thinking Space where we look at the psychological themes of a range of books and they don't necessarily have to be psychology books, they could be novels or kind of short stories but ones that say something interesting about the human experience. And for anyone who's interested in joining I release the title of the next book a month in advance to give you time to read it And then we meet on the last Tuesday of the month at 8pm London time. And you are able to join by Instagram live or via webinar with a link that I release a day or so before. All of the details about the book club are on my website, which is kimberlywilson.co forward slash book hyphen club. Or on my Instagram, which, as you probably all know, is at food and psych. This month's book was attached by Amir Levine and Rachel Heller. And the synopsis says attached guides readers in determining what attachment style they and their mate or potential mate follow, offering a roadmap for building stronger, more fulfilling connections with the people they love. In the recording, I mention a couple of videos that I showed to the attendees on the webinar. and Links to these video clips can be found on my website, so you can follow along if you want to. I hope you find it interesting, and I hope some of you will be able to join us for the next Thinking Space session. This is the book, hopefully you've read it. It'd be very, very good to hear your thoughts. Um, What I'm gonna do is just show a couple of videos first, um, and you can find those on my website, so where you had the link for the webinar, and there's a swipe up in my Instagram um, story so that you could find it. Uh, And what we're gonna do is just to kind of set the context, is really let you know about where the idea of attachment theory started from. So for everybody, uh, who's on the webinar, you'll be able to see this. And like I said, anybody on Instagram Live, if you just go into the uh, website, you'll, you'll find it there. Okay. So, essentially what we went through there was the strain situation. So attachment theory started with, originally, so um, animal uh, observations, animal studies and ethology, and then Bowlby, uh, a psychiatrist and psychologist, and I think he was also a psychotherapist, um came up with this theory of attachment which is the idea that we all have this kind of inbuilt mechanism for building relationships and that that is there from birth it's from that there, there from childhood and that this has a survival mechanism for children essentially and so the book talks about how attachment the attachment mechanism might translate over to an, to adult relationships and there is a little bit of controversy about that because there's still a little bit of question about how much the attachment in childhood does tra- translate to attachment in adulthood um, so for example are all adult relationships attachment relationships or do they serve a different function but it would be really good to hear some of your thoughts from the book um, I know some some of you said that you loved it and it was really interesting but was there anything that kind of stood out for you um, about the theory about the ideas or uh did you recognize anything of yourself in there uh hello can you hear me i can yeah hi this is benidria sheldon i'm calling from Fort Worth, texas actually oh. in the united
0: states fantastic yes, thank you so much for. The- um, I listened to it on Audible, mm-hmm. listened to the whole thing in maybe two days. I listened to Network, But it describes me and my husband to a and <laughs> It was so scary. That <laughs> was like Where were you when we were dating? So <laughs> But um and and I don't know if this is possible mm-hmm. you can tell me or clarify, but mm-hmm. is it possible to go from a secure Theory to an anxious theory because that's how I feel like I transitioned because I started out secure Mm -hmm. and now two years later I feel like I'm more anxious.
1: Okay, thank you. That's a really really interesting question. For anybody who couldn't hear that, the question was: Can you move your attachments? or your attachments change from secure, for example, to anxious, and I mean, it'd be good to hear other people's thoughts, but essentially yes and this is certainly my position is that different relationships different people bring out different dynamics in us all so for example you might have a, a kind of good strong attachment with a, a solid friend who feels secure but then if you meet someone else who is unreliable, who is maybe a little bit judgmental, if you meet someone who is a little bit critical of you, then that might elicit more kind of anxious responses in you. So I think what we should always remember is that relationships are all about dynamics. We never kind of stay in one fixed position. And I think it's quite, sometimes it's useful to think about it in terms of colors, right? So if you might be the color red, And if you meet a blue person, you create purple. But if you meet a red person, you create a different colour. It's a different dynamic when you're with that person. Um, And that's based on the conditions of the relationship, as well as other kind of conditions around you. Because work stresses, lifestyle stresses, pressures will put different pressures on the relationship as a whole. Um, And that'll shift how much energy you have to kind of stay aware. Because one of the things about attachment or about... Uh, relationship dynamics is it's about your ability to stay responsive to the other person and res- okay. and responsiveness is really about how much energy you have you know and if you're preoccupied with something else and you'll have less energy to be responsive to that person's needs or to your own needs Does so that make sense <laughs> question is the question is if you've gone from being secure to being maybe a little bit anxious is it possible and how would you come back to being a more in a more secure position so again the first thing would be about the dynamics like is it possible to maintain your sense of security with someone who is perhaps more unreliable or unresponsive or more you know unavailable so it might not just be you it might be the dynamic and so um and so (laughs) also to stay aware of what other pressures you might be under because it might be that you you're throwing yourself over somewhere else and that your sense of security and that security is about your ability to also use your partner as a safe haven to use them as somewhere that you can return to And so there needs to be a kind of willingness to do that as well. So you might need to kind of consider what might be holding you back from that. Yeah?
0: Okay. Oh, that's a whole other can of worms. Okay.
1: Okay, I think we've got another question in. I do believe I see many traits described in the book. I thought the story about Emily, how she was secure, then became anxious, due to who she met and who she fell in love with. Yes, I think exactly that, that we're talking about dynamics and that these things aren't fixed so in the book they talk about them being um, stable but like malleable so they'll stay basically the same but they can be shifted in the right conditions and certainly certainly that's what we ideally that's what we do in therapy that therapy is almost the prototype secure relationship and what we try to do is model a secure attachment and as far as ideally your therapist is consistent they are responsive they are available to you and they're caring and so the idea is that in a good therapeutic situation even people who haven't had such a good experience growing up perhaps or developmentally they can have a sense of that kind of secure relationship where they know that there is somewhere that they can come where someone will listen to them be compassionate be non-judgmental and be available yeah. Cool. Is there any other thing that kind of st- stood out for people in the book? Uh, okay. So having worked with children who are from a trauma background, I'd love to know if it's possible to form positive, stable attachments coming from a difficult background. I know they're highly valuable. Um, so I'm going to have to put my hand up and say I I am an optimist. <laughs> so I think. I I will always err on the side of the positive and and things being possible. Um, Also, I worked in prisons for a long time. And I think you can only work in prisons if you think there is a possibility of uh, rehabilitation, repair, reparation, and the capacity for the human spirit to thrive. And I think that is certainly something I learned very much and saw very much in prison was that the human spirit is the most incredible thing. And given the right conditions, wonderful things are possible. I think if we're to be specific to your question and not to me, I think it's harder work. I think if you're working with people from incredibly traumatic backgrounds, and so you're thinking about maybe they've never had good relationship before so i had a supervisor who would say you need to hope that this person had at least one good relationship in their history so if it was someone who had a terrible experience with their parents maybe they had one good aunt or one good teacher or one you know someone who showed some interest in them because that would give um a little bit more hope to the capacity to build that relationship because what can happen with very, very traumatic backgrounds is that people can give up on relationships and they can say, well, you know, if my parents didn't love me or if this terrible thing happened to me, then I can't trust the world to protect me. And so why should I bother again? And it can feel safer to only rely on yourself. Uh, and so there's it's a much harder job to try to convince that person that they should bother trying to relate to basically a stranger because that's what you are you're a kind of therapist rocking up like hey <laughs> like, you've had terrible relationships but so why don't you trust me a complete stranger so it's harder work I think as a clinician it takes a lot of hardiness sometimes a lot of hope and optimism lots of good training lots of good supervision but I think if you fundamentally believe in humans then I think it's worth a try. So, another question, the section the section on anxious, avoidant, vicious cycles really stood out. I think this could be really helpful for reduce, reducing self-blame in people who find themselves in this dynamic. Gracie, can you show me what page that was on? Because I was, if you can remind me. Because there was definitely one section where, for me, it stood out as a real, I saw a real link between a sensitive attachment and a borderline personality disorder, which I've spoken about before on the podcast. I'm not sure if we're talking about this the same section. But while we're at it, if we go to page 19, um, and I put a big mark there, because uh, dependency is not a bad word, I think is a good way to start. I don't know whether it's a particularly British thing, maybe some of our thank you, Gracie, Um, maybe some of our American uh, listeners can let me know, is that we have a real issue with (sighs) dependency, with the idea that it's okay, not just okay, but that it's necessary to rely on other people to have our basic needs met. We have certainly Brits (laughs) have this real sense of, you know, I, I, I'm independent, I can look after myself, I don't need anyone else, I'll I'll be fine, or I don't want to be a burden, I don't want to put you out. Oh no, please, please don't. Um, you know, your leg could be falling off, please don't go out of, of your way for me. And that, first of all, that's just an unnatural state of being. There is nothing in this world that anyone has ever achieved wholly by themselves they've never sprung up out of the earth by themselves but also that we're born into networks we're born into social networks they could be dysfunctional but we're born into social networks we're born with an attachment mechanism we're born made to make these connections and to try to avoid those is almost to cut off from one of the things that makes you human but to go back to gracie's question 158 so, okay, so, yeah, so that was the really quite nice little diagram of the anxious avoidant trap. And I think that's absolutely true. I think sorry to another question there. I was wondering if Taco stars also relate to other relationships. Yes, we'll come back to that. One of the things that I spend a lot of time helping people to understand is that a lot of their emotional reactions are biological or that they are you know part they've become ingrained kind of neurologically from repetition of a a type of behavior and and particularly when it comes to behavioral change because sometimes people will say oh well I know I need to do this thing I know I need to change I know I should stop being critical of myself I know I should stop drinking I know I should you know and on a rational level they get it on a cognitive basis, they're fully on board. But something about the the emotional or motivational side doesn't kick in. And I think it's about helping people to understand that so much of our behavior is, is unconscious in as far as it's become automatic because we repeat things and we do it over and over again. And we know that neurologically in the brain, you can, you'll see the phrase around cells that fire together, wire together. So the more you do a certain behavior, the more the cells, uh, the brain cells in that network fire and they get stronger and stronger and stronger, and that becomes a reinforced network of behavior. And so it becomes really hard then to shift away from something that's become so automatic. And I think sometimes just letting people know that, letting people know, actually, this is biology, this is neurology, this is how it works, and it's going to take time and it It's going to, your brain is going to want to take shortcuts and, um, and want to switch over and not switch over, but it's not your fault and, and you can do it. One of the other questions that came in was that the book focused on romantic relationships and do, does attachment account for platonic relationships as well? I realise it's turning into a Q and A. I hope that's all right with everybody. (laughs) Um, And Again, so I said at the top that there's this little bit of controversy about how much the infant attachment stuff overlaps into adult attachment, right? So, uh, and there are a couple of sets of thoughts. So one group say, well, actually, after a while, it's almost like baby teeth. After a while, they fade, they fall out. It doesn't matter as much anymore. And that is adults you set up different types of relationships. Whereas another camp say, well, actually this stuff which gets ingrained in your brain for the first two years of your existence on the planet continues and is able to influence your behaviors your feelings your thoughts long into adulthood what we know is that there does seem to be some overlap between the proportion of say secure infants and the proportion of secure adults so that seems to be about 60 percent and again 20 percent, 20 percent for the other two insecure categories. But again, I think it's going to be about those dynamics. So if you are maybe an anxious person, but you happen to meet a friend at your yoga class who is super secure and relaxed and open and welcoming and reassuring and fun, and you don't have to think twice about whether they like you or not, that's going to dial down your anxiety its going to help you to reduce that activation of that anxiety and then that's going to help you to foster new more secure behaviors so it's it's always going to be i think looking at the nuance and looking at the dynamics of how these things work together sorry just another question i completely agree with your point about dependency this has been a massive learning for me in my own therapy um and with supporting clients basically it's okay to be dependent on others yes it is and and not just okay but essential (laughs) you know it's kind of um it's kind of a bit of a of an illusion to think that you're doing it all by yourself right so let's say that you're you're self-employed and it's your business and you set it up from scratch and you've done it by yourself well sure but you rely on customers or you rely on suppliers, or you rely on the basic infrastructure of, of the society around you to l- allow you to do that. So there's always a way in which even the most self-made independent uh, person has, has benefited from somebody else. And it's okay to acknowledge that. And it's, um, I think it's important too, because otherwise the risk is that you end up feeling quite isolated and quite separate from other people and either if we're going to get really psychological um either that can lead to a kind of sense of grandiosity which you kind of feel like you're in charge and you're magic and you you can do anything by yourself or you know a a kind of sense of omnipotence where um you're untouchable and again that's a kind of lonely place to be so I think there's something quite important about understanding our reliance on each other. Like, if you guys weren't here, I'd just be talking to myself, and <laughs> that wouldn't be quite as much fun. Were there any other kind of things that stood out for you, or surprised you, about the book?
0: Hi, my, my name's Nadine. Hi, I'm <laughs> um, I'm from Oxford. Um, I thought the book was really, really interesting. One of the, the things that kind of came to mind as I was reading it was I wondered how other people felt in terms of kind of reflecting on their own attachment style Mm -hmm. um, mainly from somebody's perspective of reading it from an anxious or an avoidant perspective Mm -hmm. because one of the things that I felt that the kind of stable attachment was really put on a pedestal and I thought that was quite interesting and Mm -hmm. I wondered whether there are certain advantages to being either anxious or avoidant that possibly the book didn't pick up on.
1: Mm. Yeah, no, I think you make a really good point there. So I think the first point, in case people couldn't hear it, was that in the book, there really is this sense of how wonderful and how idealised it is to be secure. And what does it feel like, perhaps, if you were avoidant or anxious to be reading the book and seeing yourself, I guess, uh, conceptualised in that way? And I think that's a really good point. Um, I think there needs to be a sensitivity around things that might have a psychological dimension, especially if people can't help them. And in terms of positives, So the second part of the question was, is there a possibility that there are positives to being anxious or avoidant that aren't picked up on in the book? I think there's something quite interesting about the stability of the proportions in the population. So it seems to have been for a long time 60% secure and then 20-20% of the other two categories. And when something is that consistent across different uh, populations, sometimes we start to think about maybe there is some sort of genetic or evolutionary benefit to that. And for example, you might you might imagine that there is a survival benefit for for the group of... a group of people who are independent or who do downplay their attachments because maybe they're the ones who are more likely to kind of strike out and explore and innovate and try new things without the risk of feeling alone or lost or separate is a possibility. Um, In terms of a potential upside of anxiety is that perhaps it does the opposite, is that perhaps it keeps people uh, closer to the group and more available. One of the things about people who tend to anxiety is that they are very conscientious. And very helpful and they're very available, kind of involved members of the group. So I would have to double check in terms of the the literature on that, but you could you could argue you could see a possibility of there being upsides, especially with the kind of stability of the statistics.
0: Thank you. It's a really helpful reflection. I didn't think of it from that kind of evolutionary perspective and the advantages that may come from that as well.
1: Mm. Yeah, and I think one of the other things, and this is possibly because I've literally just been writing about it separately, is about some of the evolutionary side of our emotional world. So what we know, for example, about the emotions of shame and guilt is that they have a strong moral basis. And what they do is to shift our behavior in favor of the group. So guilt tends to make us feel... Responsible, and so that we want to repair the damage that we feel that we've done to other people. And shame is about understanding how our negative actions might be devalued by the group or damage the group. And there's this, there's been a really interesting paper just published showing that there's a real consistency across 15 different diverse tribal populations about the intensity of shame that people experience and how much it correlates to... Uh, the devaluation from, from the group and the idea is that it helps to keep people's behaviour in favour of group stability. It's, re- it's really, really interesting but I think that's one of the other things that people don't appreciate or, or know even about emotions is how much it's tied to our evolutionary development and I think if people knew that even just that much it would perhaps help people to feel less bad about feeling guilty or ashamed or angry because all of these feelings have a hard wiring uh, and have the kind of bigger social purpose for us.
0: Cool fact,
1: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. And so someone's just sent in a question and they've said, um, yeah, I agree with that comment. I'm anxious avoidant. And it was kind of scary reading about it. Yeah, no. And I think, again, I guess the book was trying to appeal to the majority or maybe there was a little bias in the the author's history. Who knows how many, uh, what their dating history was like. But yeah, you know, of course there's going to be nuance and of course there's going to be difference. And... Also to remember that if someone is avoidant or anxious, or anxious avoidant, it's not as if they've kind of pitched up and just chosen to be. That this is going to be a response to something and that we should feel, be a bit more thoughtful and compassionate about that. Because if someone is anxious, then actually maybe they're in need of a little bit more care from the rest of us. What did I want to say? Um, someone sent a request to be in my live video I'm not really sure what that means and I'm a little bit scared so I'm really sorry (laughs) Um, what else did I want to bring up yeah so uh, one of the things about attachment being about this idea of safety and that One of our big preoccupations, whether you know it or not, is that we're always quite frightened of being vulnerable. We're always quite anxious about kind of really showing ourselves. You know, I felt very nervous coming on here today in case, you know, I don't know, it's kind of a weird thing to do, to be having a book club online. But that, and, and one of the things about vulnerability is that it really takes us back to a place of feeling quite small. Um, and feeling quite powerless, and feeling as if we we haven't got the control that we would have liked to imagine we have. And that's one of the reasons that so many people avoid vulnerability, and that we try to I don't know raise our status by wearing the right things, or saying the right things, or eating the right things, and demonstrating that okay, thanks, Mary, um, demonstrating that we have value. And, you know, I've said Brene Brown's done a lot of work on vulnerability, and I would just send you over that way. But understanding that, again, and this comes back to the dependency question, is understanding that dependency, vulnerability, and relying on others is a part of, of being human. And while it can be scary, I think it's kind of hugely important. All right. I'm just gonna jump back in. Oh, actually, I had a second video for everybody who's uh, on the web webinar of um, what an insecure attachment looks like in an infant in the um, strange situation. Would you be interested in watching
0: that? Sounds good. Like
1: sure. Short. Okay. Um, <laughs> you sure this is- <laughs> okay. So let me just. Ooh where are we so we're going into the second video so everybody on Instagram if you go onto my website the second link for the video is um, for what an insecure sorry avoidant attachment looks like and it's a three minute clip but maybe I'll just show you the first part because it's quite it's quite potent actually and I think the really striking thing about this again in this video is the little girl is now in the room by herself and there's no distress. She's just kind of kind of taking care of herself. And it's really striking in comparison to the, the previous video where the young the young child got really, really distressed when her mother left the room. Okay. So I'll just stop that there. So any thoughts from people who watched the video, any thoughts on that, on what you saw, any reactions? yes so someone's just said on instagram this is really interesting in relation to what we call a good baby and i and I think i absolutely agree when i did this session as a live session and i showed that video one of the responses was oh fantastic she's looking after herself the girl you know she's a boss but actually what we're seeing is that this is a a very young child who for some reason has shut down her her attachment to her main caregiver and at this young age, that's not independence. And what we know, for example, um, so there's been some studies on controlled crying and the idea that you leave your child to cry and they'll just learn to soothe themselves or take care of themselves. And actually what the trials show is not quite, right? So what happens if you leave a baby to cry? Over time, the baby does stop crying and eventually they... You know they won't cry as much but when they look at cortisol when they look at stress levels between the mother and the baby what you see is that the mother's stress levels come down but the baby's stress levels actually stay very high so the baby is still stressed. they're still very anxious they're still very upset but they've just learned that nobody's going to come to comfort them I find that quite distressing, Um, and so yeah, that is uh, one of the reasons why I would discourage the idea of leaving a baby to cry. Babies don't cry for no reason. You know, they're not attention seeking. They're not being needy. Uh, They literally don't know they exist for like the first year or so. So, if they're crying, it's because they need something. They are in a state of physiological or psychological discomfort and that their entire sense of the world is based on how the world i.e their parent they or their main caregiver responds to their discomfort their sadness and their needs um this parent would be called yes i think you're right is there such a thing as an overly secure attachment excessive distress and reliance on parent to the point where the child won't talk or interact So I'm not even, I'm not sure that that would, sorry, let me, I whispering. So the question is, um, is there such a thing as an overly secure attachment, excessive distress and reliance on a parent to the point where the child won't talk or interact with others? I would suggest that that is closer to insecurity that, so, um, and anxiety, so that the child is so anxious that they can't let the parent out of their sight or they don't feel like they can be okay by themselves. That there's a sense in which they have to be closely, almost merged together in order for the child to have a sense of stability. So I wouldn't call that secure. I would say that that was more um, of an anxious type attachment. So uh, the question comes in, so when you put them to sleep and they cry, what's the best thing to do? You said leaving them to cry isn't the best idea. Um, So uh, no, I I think there's, there's nuance my my concern is around the idea that that you know and sometimes in baby training manuals and maybe it's a little bit old now and although i know some people still think it's a good idea is that you know if the baby's fed and you've just changed them and they start crying that you should just leave them to cry because they don't ha- they don't need anything actually babies cry when they have when they feel lonely and that Human interaction and that contact and that meeting and that being interested, and you know, um, you know, from birth babies attend to faces, so they have that inbuilt attachment, and that's important for the development. So you know, if uh, the occasional baby needs to kind of settle down as they go to sleep, I think that we're talking about something slightly different. And just on that point about how important. Uh, emotions are in thriving. I don't know if you remember the the Romanian orphanage studies and what they found was what they call the failure to thrive. And this was, you know, the children, they were fed and they had somewhere to live and they had nurses, but the nurses came in every, you know, a few hours a day. And what would happen, what they found was because their stress levels were so high, because they weren't getting that physical reassurance, they weren't getting that emotional contact, they weren't having relationships, which meant that their stress levels were really high. And we know that chronic cortisol, chronic stress, is actually, it's neurotoxic. It causes the brain cells to, uh, like the the dendrites, which are like the, the branches of your brain cell, to shrink back. And it can cause, you know, really actual changes in the shape of the brain. And so and I guess this really does uh, connect to a lot of, of what's in the book, is that that emotional connection, that sense that someone is available for you, that they are listening to you, that they care about you, that when you're scared or frightened or lonely or just a little bit nervous, there is someone that you can talk to, is so important because what it helps to do not only physiologically bring your stress hormones down and help your, help you to recover, but also to give you a sense of reassurance that the world is broadly a safe place and there are people out there who will broadly care about you and that when bad things happen, they are survivable and you won't be kind of left hung out to dry all by yourself. So, so if you take anything away from today, please don't leave babies to cry. <laughs> all right Uh, did I want to say anything else so what I've also done on uh, the website is to put a link in I know they give you the option in the book but you can also find your own attachment style Uh, there's an online quiz that you can do and there's a short version and a long version Uh, if you're anything like me and you like to know this stuff and I think there was one more Thing. yeah so on page 91 where they talk about the gravitational pull so the idea that we might be drawn back to some of the earlier dynamics of relationships that we'd seen before and i've written a note in here so this is just joined but sorry it's it's this book shazza attached by amir levine and rachel heller I've written in here Return of the Repressed which is um, a psychoanalytic idea and it says that you know when you get caught in those cycles of behaviour you know when you're like why do I always do this thing? Why do I always do this? I always want to do something else and end up doing exactly the same thing that I've done a million times before like I always end up in relationships with the same kind of dysfunctional person that that kind of thing (laughs) Um, then... Return of the repressed is the idea that you will keep on doing that thing until you get it. You know, so there's there's, this kind of unconscious pattern that keeps going on. And until you bring it into consciousness, until you recognize it, see it, understand it and deal with it, it will keep coming back. And so I thought that was an interesting connection there. I don't know what what you guys thought. I'm I'm aware that I'm just talking loads and it's... (laughs) I don't want it to be the Kim show. Um. You're
0: doing great. This is great information. I
1: don't want to interrupt. Evolutionary adaptive. Yeah, so someone who said um, on page 111 there was a, there's a response to whether there was an evolutionary uh, adaptivity to different attachment styles. And I folded this page in half. What did I want to say? Uh, ah, okay. So... So maybe one final video. And so we've seen links to the ghosts in the nursery. Yes, it's a great paper. (laughs) In fact, I don't know if that's, um, if it's not in copyright, I'll add a link to the ghosts in the nursery paper. So the ghosts in the nursery paper is um, again, a psychoanalytic paper, which um, article essay, which describes how, and it's called the ghosts in the nursery because Quite often what can happen for parents is that the things that they haven't dealt with from their own childhoods can re-emerge when their own children reach those ages. And so it's almost as if the ghosts of their own experience are in the nursery of their own children. And this is one of the reasons why a few days ago I posted um, some Instagram stories about how, and again, I come from very particular perspective you know I I work with a lot of people who obviously are struggling but how important it is if you, you know one of the most responsible things I think that someone can do if they're thinking about having a child is to just have a drop of therapy first like just just pop in see if there's anything that you perhaps haven't dealt with particularly if you've had a difficult relationship with your own parents. It's not to say that it's inevitable that if you've had a difficult time in your own experience of being parented, that you will automatically relive or revisit those dynamics. But it's, it's just good to be reassured um, and to give yourself the opportunity to work some of those things through so that you reduce the risk of repeating a cycle. You know, it'll be good for you, it'll be good for your family, It would by extension be good for society. So um, that is my little kind of request um, from the world. That would be great. And I've got one more. Yes. So again, coming back to page 209, uh, and it's talking about the the evolutionary mechanisms of the attachment system. So it says the emotional circuits that make up our attachment system evolve to discourage us from being alone. And why is that? Because, you know, we don't survive very well by ourselves. You know, an individual in our evolutionary history who was out there by themselves, please excuse my squeaky chair, <laughs> um, isn't surviving very long. And I think what happens, the, bit of, the conflict that arises is that our evolutionary history is one of small, closely-knit, interwoven societies and communities that had a strong sense of responsibility to one another. Whereas now, if we're living in westernised cities, there's a bigger emphasis on independence and striving and kind of not just succeeding but kind of triumphing over your peers and it can drive a real sense of of loneliness and disconnection. And again, a kind of dismissing of our need for other people, the, the fact that we do rely on others and, and, and our, our sense of dependence. So trying to reconcile those things. So reconciling the idea that it's OK to depend on others, reconciling the idea that it's OK to be vulnerable, that there's no shaming vulnerability because it's just a human capacity, and it's just part of being real. And that sense of kind of bringing things and people together is one of the reasons that you know I'm doing this. That I like to do uh, like live events and kind of get people together because I think so much of our society and so much of the way that we connect and um, so the, the ways that we communicate are actually quite disparate and separate, and that. As a psychologist, I want to be kind of leading from the front and setting a good example and helping to bring people together. So I actually have a question for you guys. Um, I don't know if you want to continue the conversation because I I thought what might work is if... I have a, I have a Facebook. I, I never use it. I, I never tell anybody about it. I've got a Facebook page um, um, and I can pop a link up and maybe if you want to carry on talking under there and i'll do the same on instagram and you can carry on talking under there if there's anything else you want to say um, or any questions that come up for you and i'm aware that we're kind of getting close to time so is there are there any other questions anything else that has come up for you guys that you want to say or want to let me know
0: I'll say real quick, thank you so much for doing this, and thanks for putting the book out there, because I would have never known about it to you, I suggest that it, and it was a very interesting, informative read. I've enjoyed the commentary, the questions, and I'm sure I'll think of something way later. Like, <laughs> I know I'm trying to be mindful of the time, and I've actually, I have to get back to work. I'm taking a break to join in on this, oh, because thank I just, you. I had to be here, so... No, that's Thank you great. Again so much. And I hope you continue to do it. I hope you bring about other books and things well, that we can discuss later. But thanks.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Yes. Yes. If people like this, I would, you know, I've got other books in mind um, and I would love to. Just because, again, you know, most people don't have a chance to have an a, an in. Like in-person book club um, most people are kind of reading book, books by themselves and also I think some of these ideas are quite interesting and useful for people so my plan is to do one the last Tuesday of every month but obviously that would depend on people turning up <laughs> um, and uh, yes. making use of it so I'll go as long as there are people to join me. Awesome. Thank you. Wow. Okay, so go back to work now. I don't need to get in trouble. <laughs>
0: Thanks, bye.
1: <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Um, all right, so, if, uh, so the question is, what's the plan with the next book? What I might do is I have two books in mind, so maybe I'll, I'll do a poll in my Instagram tomorrow and uh, let you guys decide which one it should be. And then I've got some other plans. for for later on so oh someone asked about a book about shaming Uh, it depends on what kind of shaming so maybe I'll get back to you about that i have just missed one on hormones ah it's gone oh there is lack of touch yes possibly I'll get back to you on that Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, so I'll let you guys go. um Thank you so much for joining me. It's been fun, a little bit scary, but fun. Uh, good scary. And I will try, if the audio is good enough, I will pop it up as um, a podcast so that you can listen to it. And I hope to see you at the next one. Okay. Bye.
0: Bye. Thank you, so Kimberly. Bye.